0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
2: Hi, and welcome to New Books and Genocide Studies, a channel on the New Books Network of podcasts. My name is Kelly McFall from Newman University, and I'm a host of the show. And today I'm thrilled to welcome Melanie O'Brien. Melanie is associate professor of international law at the University of Western Australia and president of the International Association of Genocide Scholars. And her new book, published in November 2022 by Routledge, is titled From Discrimination to Death, Genocide Process Through a Human Rights Lens. Melanie, thanks for joining us. And welcome to the new Books in Genocide Studies.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
2: Um, So we always start the same way. So um, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and and how you decided on academics and law and and how you became interested in uh, mass violence?
1: Well. This is a a great question. And uh, I I fell accidentally into academia on the way. I became interested in this topic area back in high school. And in high school, I studied studied about the Holocaust. I studied about the history of modern day China. And it was these kinds of studies that led me to be really interested in in this idea. I, I think I got intrigued by wondering how how people could do this to other people was this underlying question and i was also i think strangely motivated by you know as i was growing up films i watched i was really obsessed with the film dances with wolves hmm. and revisiting that film you know i realized it's really a very strong commentary on colonialism and injustice that came with colonialism and I, I really loved that movie. And I also honestly loved films like Footloose, which is also about, you know, unjust and, and arbitrary rules and people standing up against them. So I think this was kind of in my blood and I would write high school assignments about, about environmental issues like saving the baby fur seals um, and things like that. So I think I was always interested in it from from being quite young. And then I went into university and I studied history and law. And when I studied history, I studied the Vietnam War, I studied the Holocaust, nationalism, fascism, these kinds of things. So I was following this same interest area that I had started in high school. And I always wanted to be a lawyer. That was the only thing I ever wanted to be and I was always interested in criminal law and when you put together history and criminal law you get international criminal law and when you put together this sentiment that I had about justice and standing up against arbitrary rules you get human rights law Mm -hmm. so that was how I ended up specializing in these two areas of law and as I went through I Obviously, when you're interested in areas like human rights law, you want to work for organisations, whether it be intergovernmental organisations like the UN or non-governmental organisations. And that was always my goal. Um, But it, it can be very difficult to get a job in those fields. So I ended up doing a PhD after I'd done my masters in international human rights law. And then I just fell into academia because that was the job I got after doing my PhD. And so it wasn't my intended career, but as someone who loves research and is passionate about research, um, you know, I. I i'm quite happy to be here although there's always a part of me that is is still wishing to be a practicing lawyer so i'm admitted as a lawyer but i don't practice as a lawyer and so there's i think there's always that that niggling part because when you when you do when you're a lawyer and that's kind of what you want to do and it's it's part of you but you know i love i love research so um you know i'm still very happy with where i am and the work that i get to do um especially in the sense of, of the work that I do do and working with survivors a lot um, means that essentially I am working with the vulnerable and and in a different way helping them and helping their voice get out there.
2: Cool. genocide studies is a pretty interdisciplinary field and I'm always intrigued to hear people's perspectives and the way their discipline shapes their approach. So what do you think having been trained in law what is that? How does that shape the way you approach the study of mass atrocity violence?
1: I think it's really interesting thinking about the different disciplines in genocide studies, and obviously I'm a lawyer. I come from a law background. I I do also have a degree in history as well, but I've always been very sociolegal, meaning that I don't just think about the law on the page. I think about that the law is made by people. How does that influence the law? But also the law impacts people, all of us every day. Um, you know, many people don't think about that, but it. But the law is relevant to everyone every day. And that's the most important part about law, is not just what's written on the paper, but how will what's written on the paper impact people in their daily lives, essentially. So uh, I think that makes that, that can make me look at law a little bit differently, because when we think about uh, international criminal law, a lot of the lawyers are w- what we would call doctrinal. So doctrinal is when you are you are just looking at, you know, what is the law, essentially, um, you know, looking at the law on the paper. And that's fine, and it's really important, and we need people to be doing that. So that's no criticism at all. Um, but I, I think I have learned a lot from being part of the genocide scholars community from other disciplines, a huge amount, and that that's drawn into my work as well. So I consider my work to be predominantly law, but it's also interdisciplinary. I bring in other areas of other scholars, sociology, history, politics, anthropology and so on. You know, there's so many fields in in genocide studies and they really inform my work and I think make it better. And I think what lawyers can bring, legal scholars can bring to the genocide studies field is this deeper understanding of the law, what it is and how it's applied and how it affects people, which is really important to know. But I think that working with the other disciplines in genocide studies means that I think I, I, it enables me to be a more creative lawyer. Uh-huh. rather than just thinking very strictly about things, it enables me to think, to look at other perspectives about genocide and think how could we incorporate that into legal understanding of genocide uh-huh. while still using the definition that we have? So how can we be flexible enough uh-huh. to to bring in new ideas but still within the parameters of this definition that we have? Yeah, that's really interesting.
2: I'll have to kind of reflect on that. Um, I will say to listeners, um, I pointed out in the introduction that Melanie is serving as president of the International Association of Genocide Scholars. Uh, We're not going to talk about that specifically here today, but I will point you to an interview Melanie did with Caleb Zakarin, oh, I don't know, several months ago that is also on the New Books Network, and you can find that wherever you get your podcasts or or on the website. Uh, But for here... Uh, Your new book is titled From Discrimination to Death, Genocide Process Through a Human Rights Lens. Uh, And and I wonder why this book? What what made you decide that this was a question you wanted to spend, uh, as we talked about before the interview started, several years of your life um, thinking about and working on? Why this book?
1: Actually, it started back in, I think it was around 2012. Hmm. And I went to Sydney. I was I was working in Brisbane at the time, and I went to, I flew to Sydney to do an interview with the Gandel Foundation, which is a philanthropic organisation based in Australia. They're based in Melbourne, and they run uh, an amazing program through Yad Vashem, which is a Holocaust educators program. And I went to Sydney to do an interview to to be part of this program. And they said in the interview we would really love you to be part of the program and bring in your human rights expertise with thinking about the Holocaust so obviously it was focused on the Holocaust and I was successful and I I took part in that educators program which was in part a little bit online but then we spent time in Israel um, at at Yad Vashem and this really amazing educators program that they run and as part of that As my project for that, I created a teaching unit on genocide and human rights. And it really got that, it really started from there. And I became interested in thinking about what is this connection between genocide and human rights? And then I ended up applying, I was in the the first sort of eight years of my career, I was in what we call precarious employment, meaning I had fixed term contracts, which obviously you know is an an ongoing problem for people in academia Um, but one of the advantages that I had with that is that these were research positions and I was very privileged to be able to have these research positions and I ended up in a three-year research fellowship at the University of Queensland and that was for this project so I applied with the proposal to undertake this research in looking at this Intersection between genocide and human rights. So I was able to spend that three-year fellowship doing field work and starting to write the book.
2: So let's turn to the book. Uh, and for some of our listeners who are deeply enmeshed in this subject, this this may be um, this may not the question may not be necessary. But a bunch of our listeners, I suspect, come from different perspectives. So, so how are you defining human rights in this book, and and where do they come
1: from? So. Human rights are basic freedoms and protections that belong to everybody. That's that's the essential basic definition. And what I use in this book is I draw from the international human rights legal system that exists. So I draw from treaties, so human rights conventions that exist, for example, the international covenant on civil and political rights, or the international covenant on economic, social, and cultural rights. So those are only two examples. There is quite um, a large system of international human rights law. Um, So I, I draw from different treaties. I also draw from the case law that has come about in international courts and also from the international human rights bodies at the United Nations. So each of the human rights treaties has its own body that's attached to it, its own committee. And what they do is they oversee implementation of the of of the treaty that they're assigned to but they also some of them are able to hear individual complaints from individuals in countries that are a party to that convention and so in doing so they will issue a decision about that complaint and part of that is a is about interpreting that particular right that's at issue they also issue really importantly documents called general comments on each of the different rights that you find within a treaty, so they are an important source of interpretation of each right and understanding the parameters of that right. And they're part of what we call in international law soft law, so treaties are what we would call hard law and they can be binding and the soft law is not necessarily binding. So, but they are still really important because they're our way of understanding, you know, when you look at a treaty provision it's quite short. So, you know, it might say freedom of expression, but you need to, well, what is freedom of expression, what does that mean, what are the parameters of it, so these types of documents are actually really important. So those are the types of sources that I have drawn from in looking at my definitions of human rights and what I do in the book is each chapter looks at a specific right or group of related rights and at the beginning of the chapter I talk through that right, I define that right and I say here's what we're looking at before I then look at the case studies and say Okay, how was this right violated in those case studies? So we need to understand what the right is before we see how it was violated.
2: So how genocide studies scholars and scholarship, how have they addressed questions of human rights in the past?
1: One of the things I found when I first, when I started looking at this topic was that you see this expression genocide and human rights pop up every now and then some there's even, it's even in book titles it's in book chapter titles and then you read the book or the book chapter and there's no mention of human rights at all in 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 the document you know in the book or the chapter so i thought oh this is strange and of course many i mean most as i said most genocide scholars are not lawyers yeah. so why would they know about the human rights law system because that's not their field of expertise so i thought that this would be a great opportunity to connect non-law genocide scholars with the human rights legal system. But, you know, not in a general sense, but in the sense of which parts of it are relevant to genocide and specific to genocide that they would need to know about. The Genocide Convention is not
2: a human rights treaty, it is a crime suppression treaty obliging states to criminalize genocide. So how did this happen and, and why is it important?
1: This is often a misconception where the Genocide Convention is referred to as a human rights treaty, but it's actually not. The human rights treaties are completely different. So the ones, for example, that I mentioned, like the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, or the or the one on economic, social, and cultural rights, you also have the Convention on the Elimination of Discrimination Against Women, the Elimination of Racial Discrimination, you have um, uh, rights of persons with disabilities. They are very different instruments. Mm. They have a different structure and they have a different function. And they also have, as I've mentioned, committees that are tasked with overseeing their implementation and sometimes can hear individual complaints from people against their own countries if their countries have violated their obligations under that treaty. So it's, a, it's very, very different. And it's about, they are about rights, as I said, basic freedoms and protections. Whereas the Genocide Convention is a crime suppression treaty. So we do have other types of crime suppression treaties as well, things, a lot of them come out of, for example, the um, UN Office on um, Drugs and Crime. So it's it's that, that kind of, um, that, that kind of angle. Um, you know, for example, uh, Treaties about that talk about human trafficking are actually saying, you know, you have to criminalize this as well. So the Genocide Convention is not about rights of individuals, but it's about the obligation of the state parties to that convention. So the countries that are a party to the convention, criminalizing and punishing and preventing genocide. So that's what the obligation is here that's why it's a crime suppression treaty instead and it it, it came out of the genocide convention grew out of I mean we, we don't have time to go into it today but it came out of the work of Raphael Lemkin and you know there's a lot of great work a, a lot of literature that's been written about that that listeners could could have a look at um uh such as uh, Doug Irvin Erickson's work or Donna Lee freeze's work so there's plenty of literature out there about the creation of it um through through the uh the, the leadership of, of Polish jurist Raphael Lemkin uh, but yeah that's that's the difference um between these you know how how they're implemented but also the the actual obligations on states are different
2: so and just a reminder to to listeners if you're interested in that uh I did an interview with Donnelly Fries oh several years ago now um uh, when her edited work of uh, of Lemkin's so go back in the archives for that. Um, One of the things you argue, then, uh, is that genocide is a process. Uh, But you understand, and and, and that's at the core of your book, I think, at least one of the things that's at the core. Uh, Can you say what you mean by that, um, and talk about how human rights plays into it?
1: Genocide as a process, it pops up in in genocide scholarship. There are other scholars that have come up with their own their own methods, you know, their own theories of the process and how it works. But I think one thing that genocide scholars agree on is that genocide is not an event. It's not a, a one-off moment. It is a process. And essentially, what I argue, and what other scholars who have talked about process argue, but what I I, I hope <laughs> comes through very strongly in this book is that You can't get to the killing phase without all of the other actions that happened before it. It, it, What genocidal regimes have to do is all of this groundwork to make the killing become acceptable to the majority population so that they can carry out the killings. The killing is only part of the goal of genocidal regimes of the perpetrators. But they can't get there without everything else. So they have to build up this perception of the targeted group, the minority group, that ultimately dehumanizes that group in the eyes of the majority population so that all of the discrimination, all of the persecution, and ultimately the physical violence that takes place becomes acceptable and therefore the majority population stands back and watches it happen or even participates in it, making it possible to take place. So it's not just the killing, it is all of that. That is part of the process. And my argument in this book is not that what what you see through the book is the lead up to genocide. My argument is that it is genocide. It's part of the genocide process And that's really important because one of the other things that I argue is that often what we see when genocide is prosecuted in courts is the focus on killing. So individuals are prosecuted for killing people as part of genocide. But in fact, every example in this book, every chapter where I look at a particular human rights violations, I also point out where would this fit in under genocidal crimes? So you could actually prosecute, all of the instances that I describe in this book and my goal is to hopefully encourage prosecutors to prosecute and judges to convict for the other crimes in the genocide process because they're also really important we have this focus on the killing but when you look at the impact that some of the things have in this book so for example when I'm talking about taking away people's housing and people's financial capacity so genocidal regimes do that they they evict people from their houses they take away their property they take away their property rights as in you know they take away their titles to their property so people don't even have the paperwork they can you know if they survive genocide they can't go back and claim back their housing because there is no way for them to do it but also what happens is if they do manage to flee to safety they have no money they have no property they have no way of establishing a new life somewhere else in a in a without without a huge amount of difficulty because they simply have no no money no property because it's been taken from them and that an, becomes an ongoing problem so all of this is a, you know if you think about that that's you yes you've you've probably also lost family and so and i and i talk about the very long term and lifelong issues with that But the other things are also important that when you reach a safe country, you you don't have the money to rent a house. You are struggling to find employment. All of these types of things do have really significant impact on the survivors, the victims of genocide, and so also need to be taken into account and taken seriously when these crimes are prosecuted or in any way brought to court. I'm thinking of,
2: Oh, a number of people, but Scott Strauss comes to mind, uh, political scientists who are trying to create a kind of theory of genocide or theory of mass atrocity violence. And and Strauss in particular talks about null cases, about societies where many of the rights that you talk about are violated, but somehow they never manage to make it to the killing. Um, And he he uses that in terms of uh, asking us to recognize that moving through this process completely is not inevitable. I wonder how that, how that, uh, how, how you'd respond to that kind of way of thinking about theories um, and how that fits your argument about human rights and genocide.
1: It's a huge challenge to look at negative cases. Yeah. You know, I think scholars who look at it, they acknowledge that at the same time. Like, how do you really know? why this violence didn't progress further or why this situation didn't progress into violence and so on you know um some other scholars like Stephen McLaughlin have looked at dictatorship and and the leadership style and tried to understand how leadership style has led to negative negative uh violence um cases so it is a real challenge to look at that but one of the things that I argue in this book is saying okay if we look at this pattern we know we're in the genocide process and so what I say is that we should be using the human rights legal system so these human rights treaty bodies these committees that I was talking about using them to actually step up and take action and then of course other UN bodies as well but as a starting point those treaty bodies looking at The situation and saying hang on we're actually there's this pattern happening here, and this is a genocide pattern, so Mm. we should take action to prevent it from going any further for progressing through the process to the the high level violence things like torture and killing. Mm. So yeah my argument is, we should use this for a midstream prevention tool, but obviously the other thing I I do want to say is that I'm not arguing that every single genocide will look like this or has to look like this Mm -hmm. but just that if you see this pattern it it is a a genocide process pattern Mm -hmm. so obviously it's very difficult to say why would it stop but I think it comes down to you know and leadership is obviously quite important but it comes down to thinking about human rights like how are human rights perceived because a, a human rights culture definitely contributes to preventing genocide so if you see a a culture that is bringing back human rights so talking about this you know if you sort of get halfway through the process you know it's escalating to a certain point but perhaps it's also societal as well you know it's it's not sitting well with that particular society and that particular culture that this is progressing through so yeah it's really difficult to say um, the reasons but Ultimately, you know what I will always advocate for is a human rights culture in a country, uh, the culture which is implemented through a legal system as well. That's really important that, that individuals have the ability within their domestic legal system to stand up for their own rights when they've been violated. That's really important. So I'm not just talking about the UN legal system. I'm talking about what individual countries do in how they implement rights, but how they allow their own citizens to stand up for their rights and to take action when their rights have been violated. And and it's quite, you know, actually in Australia, we do not have a human rights charter at all. So I see that in my own country as being a significant issue that people don't have recourse except in very specific circumstances. So for example, we have a Racial Discrimination Act, we have a Sex Discrimination Act, but those are very, very narrow. But when we think more broadly about rights, there's, there's no charter here. And many countries in the world don't have such a charter. And these are so important for people, for the individual to be able to make sure that their rights are upheld in their own country and so that we don't progress to a situation like
2: genocide. I used a term that some people might not be familiar with, so I just want to put a pin in it, we'll come back to this idea of midstream interventions, or, uh, but but just a little bit more kind of background on the book, you, you kind of identify, you, you broadly identify five separate stages of human rights violations. Can you talk us through those five stages briefly?
1: Now the five stages that I identify is essentially the escalation of the process, and I I don't want to say that this is uh, strictly linear because many of these overlap, but it is an approximate temporal timeline of the rights violations that occur through the process in the in the approximate order that they occur. So I start part one simply focuses on freedom of discrimination. And as an example, that may be where it starts, but I also very clearly state that this is overarching throughout the entire process, because all of the rights that are violated throughout the process are, with the exception of freedom of expression and opinion, which is violated from the entire population, but Mm -hmm. all of the rights are focused on violating those rights of the targeted population, so it's discriminatory. So that's why i keep that one separate part two is where we look at essentially the lower end and we say lower end but again i want to emphasize that we can't get to the killing without these so they are still really important so i look at freedom of expression and opinion education and culture rights employment political and fair trial rights freedom of religion family and privacy rights and child rights so how would position these is to say that these are non-violent, in a sense, non-physically violent Mm -hmm. anyway. So this is before we reach the more extreme physical violence part of of the process. And to me, really here at at, at this stage, once we see these specific rights being violated, here is where we could argue we need to take action before it escalates. Into part three, the, the next stage, where now we start to see restrictions on freedom of movement, liberty and security of person, and we also start to see slavery coming in. Here's where I also start to address the rights to health and adequate standard of living, which plays quite a significant role in the genocide process. And when when we start to see those rights really being violated, that's when we move into part four, the next stage where we look at Uh, the right to freedom from torture and of course the right to life and so that's the main process but actually I add an additional stage to my theory and that is the refugee stage which I think is is a very unique way to look at it where I argue and I know we're going to talk about that in a minute but so but I argue that the refugee stage also forms part of the genocide process and should be considered overall when we're talking about the crime
0: slash nbn50 to get 50% off.
2: We don't have time to talk about all of these, um, and so I just want to encourage the listeners now to, to pause the podcast, go order the book, and then come back. Um, but but maybe a couple of them, maybe you can give us a, a little more detailed sense of what you're doing and, and what kind of rights are being violated. Um, and and you talked a little bit about discrimination already. So so maybe we'll move to family and privacy rights. So what what kind of rights get included under this broad label of family and privacy rights and rights? And how does that fit into this notion of human rights violations as a part of the genocidal process?
1: So family rights, I put family and privacy rights together because they are connected in in the, the human rights law, um, but they are also connected in practice as well. I, I and I also want to point out that I also talk about family rights in the chapter on child mm-hmm. rights, but I separate those discussions because children do have additional specific rights to being a child, but that are connected to family rights. I think one of the most important things that comes out of looking at family rights, you know, the right to a family, just essentially, is that one thing that just comes through every single survivor in every genocide you look at has lost family members Mm -hmm. and maybe if they're lucky they've only lost one family member but so many people have lost just huge numbers of their family sometimes they're the only surviving member left of their family and this is just I mean it's incredibly significant it impacts them for the rest of their lives you know they experience the mental health issues that go with family loss for the rest of their life. This sense, things like a sense of loneliness. And I think one of the stories that really struck me in thinking about family rights, I, I actually talk about in my refugee chapter, but it's very much connected to family rights. Um, Saw so High Gov, uh, uh, the story of a, a Cambodian refugee who was a child under the Khmer Rouge in the 1970s and lost his parents and his siblings. And he eventually managed to find some of his family two of his two uncles and neither of them wanted him they argued over oh, I don't want him I don't want you know they saw him as simply a burden he was another mouth that they had to feed he did end up going with one of his uncles to Australia as a refugee so you think okay He's lost some of his family, but he's managed to find some family. Like, isn't that great? But in fact, he had a terrible life living with his uncle who just saw him as a burden, who abused him, who made him work as what that was seen as payment for having saved him and and brought him to Australia. So he was a child. He was 13 when they came to Australia and he was made to work to to, to pay off this debt and and constantly abused. His cousins would be playing and he would have to work. So he didn't have a childhood. And you can argue that even though technically he was living with family, he didn't have a family. Mm -hmm. And he he wasn't able to essentially be safe until he became an adult and left that home and Mm. created a life for himself so you can see that this right to family can be quite pervasive as it goes through even if it's not necessarily about the 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 family that has part that has been killed
0: Mm.
1: so it's it's quite significant and i there's also the issue of separation so it's not just about death of family members but there are so many stories of survivors who they, they assume that their family members have died, mm-hmm. but many, many years later, you know, we're talking about like a dozen years, even 20 years and decades later, they actually find their family and some of them often never really reconnect with their family. You know, I give the example of a a survivor who found her father who had moved to Argentina and the cultural divide between them was so great because she had grown up somewhere else that they never really reconnected as father and daughter. So even without death in the family, there can still be a loss of family. Um, When I talk about privacy rights, because obviously this this is probably something that people don't think about. So people might think about family as being something obvious, But privacy rights are really different. So privacy can be about bodily, intellectual, spatial, decisional, communicational, associational, proprietary, behavioural and informational privacy. So it's actually quite a broad concept. But even when you think about the basic elements of privacy, you think about something like when people get put in ghettos and camps and they live in very crowded conditions. There's that idea of physical privacy that just does not exist for people. I also talk about the use of nudity in genocide and the privacy element of that. The use of nudity pops up a few times throughout my book in different ways, but it's also obviously a violation of privacy rights. That's you know, it's our bodily privacy, thinking about bodily autonomy and the control that the perpetrators have over victims so this is a violation of their right to privacy and and nudity is is often used specifically by perpetrators you know and people talked about for example um victims of the Holocaust talking about when they went to camps and were put into the showers they talked about how it was the first time that the, all the family members had seen each other naked because that was not something that they did and so they were very embarrassed by having to do that so there's all these things that we think about as being smaller but really have quite an impact and the survivors are still talking about these aspects of the what happened to them years later it still impacts them so it's not unimportant um you know these these aspects so i thought that i thought that this the privacy rights was quite an interesting one to explore.
2: Yeah, and all of these chapters are interesting. I I was particularly, there were several of them more like, like the family section or privacy, or, or especially children's where looking at it from a human rights perspective made me think anew about the lenses we bring to the study and uh, very rewarding to read them. You, you've suggested this a couple times, but, um, but in particular, I was intrigued by this notion of genocide continuing. And so this issue of refugee rights as being, and, and, and the experience of refugees as being part of that genocide process. So can you maybe ex- explain and expand on
0: that?
1: I'm, I'm glad that this intrigued you because this is one of the aspects I'm most excited about mm-hmm. to present in this book because I think it's unique and other mm-hmm. people have not considered this part of the genocide process. So what I look at here, so there is a a refugee convention from 1951, and I'm not looking at refugee rights from the refugee convention. Mm. What I'm looking at in this chapter instead is how do refugees experience human rights in general? And so I look at some of the rights that I've explored in the book. So rights like employment and rights like religion and culture and political rights, family and child rights, uh, adequate standard of living and health. And even you know, looking at things like freedom from torture and the right to life as well. So looking at their experience, what I'm essentially arguing, because I found that, so there, there are different, way, different experiences of refugees. What we often know, we know that when there's a genocide, there is going to be a mass flow of people across the border into a safe country next door because they have to get out of the territory where they're at risk of being killed or put into camps whichever whichever stage we're at I mean people start fleeing the country from early in the process so we're not say, talking about people just fleeing the country when there's killing happening they start to flee the country early in the process which again is another argument for genocide being a process mm-hmm. But what they experience when you start looking at refugees experiences is is really difficult. And when we think about, like now we have a a refugee system from the convention, we have the UN Commissioner on Refugees, we have the International Organization for Migration. So we have these organizations that are there to help refugees when they cross the border. But regardless of any of their best efforts, you can't suddenly, provide food, shelter, clothing, medical assistance for thousands, sometimes millions of people who are crossing the border all at once. If you think about the Rohingya in 2017, it was in the space of a month that you had close to a million refugees crossing into Bangladesh. So it is just not logistically possible to suddenly provide medical assistance, food, shelter, and so on for all of these people so they always end up in these horrific conditions no sanitation they're already starving they're already injured likely because they've generally they've walked a lot very long distance they've experienced they could have experienced violence before they left and they have injuries from that so they're already unwell they're already starving they may be ill as well and they get there and there's no food and there's no shelter They can't, there's no clothing and there's no medical assistance. So what we see is people facing illness from things like cholera, dysentery, these kinds of transmissible diseases that happen when we have no sanitation and people die from these and they can die from the injuries or the illness that they already had and couldn't get medical treatment from. We see lack of security. We see girls and women experiencing sexual violence in high numbers in these kinds of camps. So actually it's inevitable that the genocide process continues through what I argue are the genocide crimes of causing serious mental and bodily harm but also imposing conditions of life designed to to bring about death And, and my argument is not that the host country is responsible but that the original perpetrators are responsible for this conduct that occurs and I even I also look at what happens to refugees when they end up in safe third states like even when they're resettled they have a very difficult time they can't necessarily find employment they really struggle to find housing you know i looked at i had a statistic in there that i found that even in 1990 so the khmer rouge were in power in the 1970s but even in 1990 40 percent of the cambodian refugee population in the u.s was living in poverty so you know it is very difficult for them and they also have difficulty accessing medical uh, and health assistance because of they can because of language barriers and cultural barriers and they do have medical needs they have medical needs from what they experience physically but they also absolutely have mental health needs from what they experience so these are the types of things that I argue are all part of the process and that those genocide perpetrators are responsible for so I think that this argument will be really key for prosecutors to take to courts, but particularly where it's useful is the International Criminal Court, because the International Criminal Court only has jurisdiction over crimes committed within the territory of countries that are a party to the International Criminal Court. So what we often see, of course, is that crimes like genocide are committed in countries that aren't party to the International Criminal Court. But then what happens is the survivors have moved across the border into a country that is a party to the court. And so my argument is that we can then argue, well, part of the process happened in, in the territory of, of what we call a state party. And so therefore you can use that and you can actually bring charges against the perpetrators even though they're in the next door country. So it's, it's, it's a... It's a I want to say sneaky, but I think it's a clever legal argument, and, and I really <laughs> hope that it will be taken up uh, by by the prosecutor of the International uh-huh. Criminal Court. And of course, subsequently, then the judges when they're making that decision. So one of the things you
2: say is that looking at this at the genocide process through a human rights paradigm allows you to um, both retrospectively, but also looking forward from current events, uh, better Uh, analyze mass violence and, uh, and understand whether it fits into the genocide category of genocide or not and you look specifically at the Rohingya as an example of how this might be done so can you say a little bit about how you tried to do that and what conclusions you reached
1: yeah so the the main part of the book looks at three historical case studies the Armenian genocide the holocaust and the Cambodian genocide and it's about creating a theory it's about looking at completed genocides to see, was there a pattern? Um, Did that that pattern have similarities between the case studies? Which the answer is yes, definitely. Um, But then what I wanted to do was make this practical and look at a current situation and to say, does the current situation fit the pattern? So was there a point in this century where we could have stopped the violence of 2017 against the Rohingya or even 2012? And the answer is yes, because it also fits the pattern, going back decades of discrimination and the very, again, the specific discrimination of against the Rohingya by the Burmese authorities, decades of it. So action could have been taken well before what happened in 2017, where, well, the, the, the killing figures are Unknown. It's estimated at least 10,000 people were killed, but you know, as I said, nearly uh, essentially a million refugees ended up across the border in Bangladesh, and are still there. So we could have, you know, the international community could have prevented this because they could have seen it coming, but, but for many decades. And so it was important to me to include something current because I wanted to say here's how we can use this going forward in current and future situations because even though it's a theory and I'm looking at historical cases, I want this to also be practical and to be able to be used um, in terms of human rights prevention, but also obviously um, prosecution, punishment of genocide. I
2: had a <clears> student <throat> years, a couple of years ago who um, did her senior honors thesis looking at all, uh, trying to understand what kind of information was known in the United States about what was happening to the Rohingya in the years before the ethnic cleansing expulsion, whatever term we want to use. And and she came up with dozens of reports from a variety of nonprofit organizations outlining clearly the kind of human rights violations you were saying and making it impossible to think that no one, not impossible to think we didn't know, just impossible to think we couldn't know. Um, And the tragedy, of course, is the space between those two cases. And that brings us maybe back to that term you use, midstream intervention. Um, And I think, although I'm not sure if somebody did it before that, but I think that's Jim Waller's uh, invention and I interviewed him about his book. Can you say a little bit about what midstream intervention is and how that intervention might work in this world?
1: I think that midstream intervention is not something we come across that frequently. What we see most is early warning. Mm -hmm you know, the the early stages. And obviously that's the most attractive because we would like to stop things even before they get to midstream. But I guess in arguing midstream, I'm just trying to present, well, I am presenting another option that if something wasn't stopped in the early stages, here we can see the pattern and we can stop it before it escalates. So using midstream is, is essentially looking at the process that I have found. And, and it fits with with other process patterns, you know, such as Helen Finds, you know, where we're thinking about um, detention, you know, putting people in camps and things like that. But um, the the midstream point for me is essentially where before we escalate to the physical violence stage of the of the genocide. And it's is trying is stopping it there to to try to prevent that you know well to hopefully to prevent that from happening but that you can only see that we are definitely in a genocide process once you get essentially to that midstream point because the process is clearly there so it's what i found was that because there are lots of human rights there are more human rights than i cover in this book but these are the specific ones that Genocide, that the perpetrators actually really target to carry out genocide. And so therefore, rather than sort of random human rights that might be violated that that wouldn't lead to genocide, you know, we have to be seeing, okay, here is this specific pattern. Um, and we recognize now we are in the middle of the process.
2: So any good research project doesn't just answer questions, it raises them. Um, so so what having done this what does your research suggest about areas that you or other scholars might explore
1: one of the things I mean obviously there are so many genocide case studies Mm -hmm. and you can't cover all of them even doing three was a a huge amount of work Mm -hmm. for this book but one of the types of genocides that I do not look at here that I would like to see if this paradigm fits are indigenous colonial settler genocides so as I've mentioned, I my argument is not that every genocide must look like this. And so therefore I may look at those and find that this pattern doesn't fit them. It may do, but maybe it doesn't. That doesn't mean it wasn't genocide. I you know, I want to make very clear this is again, this is not an argument that every genocide must look like this. It's just that if we do see this pattern, it is genocide. So I think that's that's a main a main gap in this, and I think I consciously made that decision because I felt like they are a genocide of a different ilk, and so I I wanted to. But I think it was you know it was also based on the knowledge that I already had of of, of these case studies. They were already on my radar. That's obviously you know, always how do you choose your case studies? Um, And I did want to look at historical ones, but also it was ones that I had already had some knowledge of. So to build on that existing knowledge base as well. And so I think that that's something that I would like to have a look at. But I also, I really hope in the future that scholars will, will draw on this theory when they're thinking about when they're analysing other case studies, whether they be historical case studies or current case studies. But, you know, we're talking about schools, but I also really hope that policymakers are drawing on this and lawyers and judges when they're thinking about looking at current situations or when they're making decisions about prosecutions and what they will prosecute and how they will do it. And for judges, when they have to make a decision based on the evidence in front of them about whether or not it was genocide that took place i hope they will think about this process and say well you know does the evidence show that it fits this process then yes we can this is, was definitely genocide and we can convict for genocide you know, here i am going to flip your
2: role around and ask you maybe somewhat informed by your your role as president of the scholarly organization I think we all wish as academics that our work would have that effect. Um, I would love it if people read my stuff. (laughs) How can this community of people, which spends so much of our time and effort trying to find ways of shaping a world that is better than the one we are in, how can we get the public to understand better the kind of conclusions we reach?
1: It's really challenging, isn't it? Because the work that we do, is it is really important. We, we are working on something that is so significant and impacts so many people in such a terrible, terrible way. And all of us, regardless of the discipline or the angle that we take, our ultimate goal is the prevention and punishment of genocide. Mm-hmm through scholarly work. And a lot of us do advocacy work as well. And I, I, to be honest with you, I would consider all of scholars in genocide studies, even if all they're doing is writing journal articles and books to be advocates, because that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to understand how does genocide happen? How can we prevent it? How can we punish it? How can we educate about it? And we really we're obviously always hoping that our work will make a difference and I think there's a few ways for me so in in you know it, as as you know as an academic oh, there's this focus on impact how do we prove impact and it's a challenging concept which so far nobody seems to be able to really define but when you are a scientist for example you maybe you are researching a cure for cancer and you come up with a cure for cancer impact is very easy to prove it is less so for scholars like us for humanities and social science scholars and but for me the biggest impact I have isn't something that is measurable it's that I have the privilege of interviewing survivors of genocide of mass atrocities and I have that privilege of hearing their stories which means so much to me but it also means a lot to them because it means a lot that someone is sitting and listening to them that is willing to listen to them and that believes their story because many people don't in Cambodia people would tell me they've never told their story one woman said oh my family doesn't believe me when I say what happened under the Khmer Rouge so the catharsis for them is quite extraordinary and that impact on me I mean how amazing is it to get to help people in that way I think it's quite extraordinary so for me that's a really significant impact and the fact that I'm a way that their voice and their story and their experience can reach a broader audience you know thinking about say the Rohingya woman in a camp in Bangladesh amongst a million other people and i can take her story and put it out there so that people know what's going on that's that's extraordinary so then to take it to the next level coming you know coming more back to your question and thinking about you know i, I think it's about networking and that's one of the important things we try to do with the international association of genocide scholars is make sure we connect our scholars with practitioners so we have a relationship with the UN Office of the Special Advisor on Genocide Prevention, which is quite important. And we have a policy paper series um, that that office is engaged with and um, you know, wants us to produce because they want to read these things. Um, the, the Special Advisor attends our conferences. For example, she will be a keynote at our conference this year and they're always interested in what is the work coming out of the scholarship, so that's really important. And I think getting the chance to attend conferences where there are also uh, representatives from organisations like the UN or courts, um, but also government representatives is really important and that scholars should not be afraid to give their work to those people. Um, I was lucky enough to launch my book in December in Armenia, and it was launched by Sylvia Fernandez, who is the former president of the International Criminal Court and the current president of the Assembly of State Parties of the International Criminal Court, and also by Mr Nick Kumjian, who is the head of the Myanmar um, investigative mechanism. So these kinds of opportunities is making sure that your work gets into the hands of people who are actually practicing. So Mr Krumjian is obviously in the process of collecting evidence about what has happened to the Rohingya Mm -hmm. and giving that to courts. So that's quite important. Um, So I think using networks like IAGS for scholars is, is so important and getting their, their work into the hands of the policymakers, the legal practitioners, those working in organisations on the field is is a really important way of, you know, and, and we need we need to make sure we proactively do that because of course, uh, a lot of our work that gets published in journals is behind a paywall that these people can't access. So it's important that we proactively send that out to these people, and in in hope that the huge amount of work that we all put in. Does actually contribute in even the smallest way to genocide prevention and punishment.
2: Well, that seems an appropriate place to stop. So I always ask the same two questions at the end. The first one is um, do you have a book suggestion or two for uh, the audience? And and as I told you before, I'm halfway through spring break, so maybe a book suggestion for me.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. So I was thinking back about the time, you know, because it took me a long time to work on this book. There yeah. was a lot of field work. So I I thought about I went back to as as a as a nerd who reads, I, I make a list of all the books I read that aren't work-related. Um, although sometimes they are tangentially related. So I pulled out two of them that over the over the years that I was working on this book, I I know I really enjoyed, like really found meaningful. So one of them is called Women of the Outback, mm. and it's edited by or written by Sue Williams, and what it is every chapter is the story of a different woman who lives and works in the Australian outback and I, I found it extraordinary because I'm, I'm a real city city woman um, and so reading their stories and their lives and the challenges and the achievements and the different things that they do from you know being a drover you know working on a farm with cattle to running a pub Of course, the pub is an an essential item in every Australian town and even (laughs) especially in the outback. It's the the centre, the no community Uh centre. So, you know, these kinds of stories and the challenges that the women have faced was was really extraordinary. It's really easy to read. It's really well written in a very engaging style. And another one I read more recently was... Uh, is the book called the Watergate girl by Jill Winebanks so Jill Winebanks was the only female lawyer working on the Watergate case oh. and she's still a lawyer and still does and has done a lot of amazing work since then but this book is about her work is about the Watergate case and you know it's just fascinating because obviously it's such a fascinating case and especially it, you know when we just had Trump as, as president who had so many similarities to Nixon going back and, and and looking at things related to Watergate it is really interesting but also obviously hearing the story of what it was like for a woman mm. working on that case where she was the only woman and how she experienced that and you know the elements of sexism that she obviously experienced during that time um, is really yeah, really fascinating story as well. So uh, those were two books that I enjoyed reading a lot. Stories of uh, amazing and strong women. I will look
2: for those. Thank you so much. And the second question, which is always unfair, but always um, relevant for an academic, what are you working on next?
1: Oh, how long have we got? (laughs) I am constantly working on issues related to the crime of forced marriage in atrocities and I've been doing a a lot on that over the past, it's probably at least 18 months now because of the Dominic Ongwen case before the International Criminal Court, so I work in particular with Valerie Osterveld and Kathleen Maloney. Um, On that case we did a, uh, there was a, a group of us, a group of women who submitted an amicus curio brief amicus Curio it means friends of the court and we submitted that brief and we also appeared before the court in the appeal of Dominic Onwen. Mm. so uh that appeal has been issued and um amazingly everything that we submitted was was incorporated and upheld by the court so that's wow. really fantastic and that's you know we were talking about impact that's yeah. that's really extraordinary impact and we're so delighted that we could contribute to justice for those victims who experienced really really horrific crimes so we're working on writing academic pieces out of that at the moment um i'm well always have been working ukraine is always in the background is yeah. it also a scholar of um the laws of war mm. um although i'm not writing anything on that at the moment but what i am working on is um Last year I was lucky enough to be a research fellow at the Sydney Jewish Museum and what I worked on there was an extension from my book because I found that when I was writing my book, I couldn't say everything that I wanted to say but also there were parts that I wanted to research more. So last year I was lucky enough to be a research fellow at Sydney Jewish Museum and I looked at the right to sanitation. So I interviewed survivors and I accessed, you know, all of their the uh testimonies that they have and, and all of the amazing resources to look at how Holocaust survivors experienced sanitation so it was it sounds weird um and there was a bit of you know there was always a bit of laughter around the office because um Conrad Crete, who's the resident historian and he's just wonderful, wonderful supportive academic he loved introducing me to people and telling them that I was working on shit so <laughs> And uh, we laughed about it, but actually it was true because yeah. I was talking to the survivors about what was their experience with with washing, what was their experiencing with toilets, and um, you know, so clean, essentially cleanliness—that's what sanitation is about. And you know, I've discovered it's really crucial in the genocide process because people die of lack of sanitation; they get diseases, they get infections. It can give them life, if they survive, it can give them lifelong health problems. So, you know, there's an element of there that we we can make a joke about. But actually, it's quite significant and it's not something that people think about. Um, So I'm I'm looking forward to to digging in now and being able to write up my findings from that research at the museum.
2: I've been talking with Melanie O'Brien, the author of From Discrimination to Death, Genocide Process Through a Human Rights Lens published by Routledge. Melanie, thank you so much for joining us. I hope that when you um, get that written up, you'll be back on the New Books Network to talk about it. But thank you so much for uh, being with us today.
1: Thank you so much for having me and letting me talk about my book.